Let's pray before we begin. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here this afternoon so that we can sing, so that we can hear your word, so that we can be taught by you. Lord, this is our prayer that as we just sang, that our lives would bring glory to you every single day. You have given station to each one of us. You have given to each one of us opportunities and resources. And we're going to be held accountable for how well we steward them. And on this day, Lord, as we think about mothers, Lord, I pray, Father, that each mother that is here would steward well the ministry that you have assigned to her. Even though they are not appreciated as they should be and overlooked and looked down upon even in our generation today, we know that it is a gift from you to be a mother. And I pray, Lord, that your word would teach us today, that your word would encourage, that your word would build up every single one of us, Lord, not only mothers here, because we all have something to learn from your word today. I pray that you would give me grace and strength, Lord, to deliver this for your glory and for the edification of your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. My desire, as I mentioned earlier, to bring you a message today entitled Biblical Motherhood. Since today is Mother's Day, we thought it appropriate to take this Sunday and focus specifically on this subject. Now, it does not mean that if you're not a mother or if you don't have kids who are in the house, that there won't be anything here for you because every single one of us, regardless of age or gender, is in one way connected to the subject. All of us have or had mothers. Some of them have passed away, but all of us had mothers. As we think about Mother's Day, it is an opportunity for us to just reflect on the gift that God has given to us in our mothers and to praise God for that and also to appreciate them. Perhaps for some, you grew up in a home where your mom did not live up to the standard the Bible prescribes for her. And perhaps you've been carrying that with you for many years and maybe today is an opportunity for you to let that go. Now, women who are mothers will be specifically addressed in our text today But I pray that this would be encouraging and challenging for all of us because there's going to be so many different lessons in this text. Now, women who are not mothers, those who do not yet have children or perhaps never will, or maybe you wanted to have children and you never have, listen, our text is so clear today that whether you are a mother and whether you have a child and when you have a child is determined by God himself. And so taking rest in the sovereignty of God and resting in His kindness is a great place of comfort that one would have. Because it is a place of pain and hurt for many who wanted to be mothers, but for one reason or another could not. Now I know we live in a day where mothers are not appreciated. And we live in a day where apparently men make better women and take all their rewards. And... uh, But we can just be honest here, right? Only women can be mothers, right? And we have to say that in 2023. Only women and their mothers, they're not birthing persons or other derogatory terms that are used for mothers today. What's clear in our text today is that God determines whether you are a mother and when you are a mother. And we want to exalt this high calling of a mother. And at the same time, we don't want to disparage those who do not have children or perhaps never will. You see, just as marriage is a great blessing from God, single people can also appreciate that even though they're not married. And just like being a mother is a great privilege and a great honor from God, even if you don't have children, you can still appreciate and praise God for this amazing gift that God gives. Singles can celebrate marriage, and people without children can celebrate mothers, because it all comes from God, and He's sovereign about every state. Now, while most of this will be addressed to women as we'll walk through this text, I want to say a few words to men. If you are married, and if you have children who are at home, you have to do everything in your power 
to enable your wife, the mother of your kids, to fulfill the role that God has given to her. If you're single and not married, you're looking to a day perhaps when you will be married and when you will have children. And so you have to prepare yourself and prepare everything in your power so that you would be able to take care of the woman that the Lord will give to you and the children if he will so please. If you're older and perhaps you had children and they're out of the house, or maybe you've never had children, you still have a role to play. There are people, even in this small congregation here, there are people who will need your help, and you can come alongside of those who are raising children. You can be a spiritual mother to come alongside of a younger person and to teach them what the Lord has taught you through your experience as you walked with the Lord. So regardless of who you are, where you've been, there is a way that this connects to you. Now, as a basis for our study, I want, us to ta- I want to take you to one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, the story of Hannah and Samuel. You probably read the story, and you know that it begins as one of the most heartbreaking stories in the Bible, and it ends as one of the most heartwarming ones. But just to set the context, you remember that this is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. This is period of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the darkest books in the Bible. And there is one refrain that characterizes this time. In Judges 17, 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And needless to say, most of what was right in their eyes was wrong in the eyes of God. The book of Samuel, or 1 Samuel, is a transitional book because you transition from Judges to kings when Saul is anointed and then David becomes the king of Israel. Samuel, of whom we will read today, he is the final judge, but he's not only the judge, he's also a priest. Not only is there turmoil in the civil uh, nation of Israel, but there's also problem in their worship. You remember that Eli and his sons are currently overseeing the tabernacle. Hophni and Phinehas are two sons of Eli, and they were wicked men. You see, the job of a priest was to represent people before God, but these men did not know God. According to chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now that is a problem if you're a priest. Not only that, they were wicked men. If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, it says, When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, or he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the man despised the offering of the Lord. These were priests who were to represent you before God. On top of all this, they engaged in sexual immorality because verse 22 says, Now Eli was a very old man, and he heard all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Remember in chapter 3, when God speaks to Samuel for the first time, he says this concerning Eli and his sons. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, In that day... I will will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Now you can see that this is a dark period in Israel's history. But as so often is the case in these dark moments, a ray of light shines and gives hope. And that is the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah is mother of Samuel, who plays a significant role in the history of Israel. 
And because he plays this significant role, his mother plays a monumental role in his life as well. Now I want us to walk through her story here in chapter 1 and see what we can glean from her this account about motherhood. Now because this is a narrative, I want to simply give you three words that appear in this text so that you can hang your thoughts on them. The first word we can say is the word distress. In first eight verses, you will see Hannah's distress. In verses 19 through 20, we will highlight Hannah's devotion. And in verses 21 through 28, we will conclude by examining Hannah's dedication. Let's begin with Hannah's distress. Read with me first eight verses. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuv, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now while the focus of this chapter is going to be on Hannah, you notice the chapter begins by introducing us to Samuel's father. His name is Elkanah, which means God acquired. He's identified here in verse 1 as a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. The name of the city here, you have the heights of Zophite, is what the place was called. And the same place later on in verse 19 is identified as Ramah. This city is in the ter- territory of Ephraim, about five miles north of Jerusalem. Now because he lives there, he is identified here in verse 1 as Ephraimite. However, if you trace down his lineage, you will find out that this man is actually a Levite. Because we have here, if you look at verse 1, we have his genealogy. We have here the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, and the son of Zuth. Now, all Testament genealogies, like say, for example, first nine chapters of the book of Chronicles, it's not just a collection of baby names if you're looking for a Hebrew name. That's not what it's there for. It is there because it gives very important information about people of Israel. Now, if you were to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, you will find this in the lineage of Levi. Chapter 6, verse 33 says, From the sons of Kohathites, that is one of the sons of Levites, were Haman the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Eliel, the son of Toa, the son of Zuth. Now, spelling is a little different with few names, but these are exactly the same individuals that are mentioned here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, this makes a lot of sense given the position that Samuel occupied in the Bible. You recall that Levites were God's chosen people to be those who would serve as priests. You remember God separated them, and he says, these are the people who are going to approach me, and they're going to represent you before me. When the tabernacle was transported in the wilderness, we know that the sons of Kohath were responsible for the most holy objects. And so their job was to carry those objects, to cover them, to bring them, to set them up. Now when they entered the promised land, apparently once the building was built, we know that Levites did not receive their territory, but they were scattered all throughout the nation of Israel. So different tribes, different territories, they had cities that were allotted to the Levites. And so all these Levites, they lived all over the, in the, all over the map. And so once in a while, based on rotation, they would travel and they would serve at the tabernacle. 
Now, this was the case here. Most likely when you have here a yearly rotation, as he would do yearly, it's not a reference to Elkanah appearing before the Lord once a year because the men were commanded to appear three times a year. What most likely this refers to is that Elkanah was a priest who were to go to Jerusalem on his rotation where he were to serve for a certain amount of time and then he would go back home. And when he would do that, he would come and he would bring. That's why you read here in verses 4 and 5, when it was his turn to serve, then he would bring the sacrifices that were offered, and the priest had his own portion that was given to him, and so he would share that with his family. That's what the reference is to in verses 4 and 5. Now, that is the family. So this is a Levi who lives in the ter territory of Ephraim. Now, verse 2 introduces us to a family feud. Verse 2 says, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Now, since Hannah is mentioned first, it is most likely that Hannah was his first wife. Hannah means grace. Penina means pearl. According to verse 5, the text says here that he loved Hannah, but Hannah was barren. Now, perhaps this might explain why he married again, because having children at that time was very important. And when we read through the Bible, you know that polygamy, although it was part of the Old Testament, it, was, it never led to anything good. Never led to anything good. You see, in God's design, even before the fall, it was one man with one woman in a relationship. And it is only as a result of sin that you had polygamy. Sin introduced polygamy. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand how much trouble it brought into the families of God's people. I mean, go to Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. What about Jacob's family and his children? When was the last time you read David's story and his sons? I mean, these are horrible instances of sin, and they all stem from this polygamy. There is competition. There is bitterness, and we'll see it all throughout the Bible, including in this story. Now, the text says here explicitly that Hannah was barren. And notice at least three times in this text, the author tells us the reason why she was barren. In verse 5, it says, but the Lord had closed her womb. In verse 6, it says, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. When she finally conceives, in verse 19, it says Elkanah had relations with, his, with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. You see, here is a point that is so clearly demonstrated here. The Lord determines if and when you have children. The Lord determines that. Psalmist said in Psalm 27, verse 5, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, the fruit, fruit of the womb, is a reward. You see, to be a mother is a great blessing. And it is the Lord who gives that blessing. Up until now, in this text, the Lord has not granted that blessing to Hannah. And this was a cause of great distress for her. Now, I know that there are many people who experience this distress who wanted to have children for a long time, and for one reason or another, again, it has not happened. The Lord has not granted. It is painful. But again, as we'll see even in this text, that resting in the sovereignty of God, and just realizing this, that at the end of the day, it is not about you, and it's not about your husband. It is about the Lord, because the Lord grants children. And you can try to do whatever you want to do. And if the Lord does not give, you will not have them. And so taking that burden off of yourself, it is a great reminder that, listen, God is in sovereign control of all things in my life, including this area. Because so often people take that upon themselves and they carry this heavy burden upon themselves as if they're broken and they're messed up somehow. Now, if we read throughout the Bible, there was stigma attached to that. That's why even in this text, you see this. People are looking down at her. Her second wife here is causing her distress. And there was stigma with that. But you know what? Stepping back and realizing that the Lord is sovereign over this area is a place of great comfort. Now, if one is in that position, here's a pro tip for you. Stay away from Penina. 
Isn't that what verse 6 says? Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly. Why? To irritate her. You see, perhaps it was jealousy for her husband because her husband loved her, right? She derived pleasure from inflicting pain on her. Notice she would provoke her to irritate her. She knew exactly what she was doing. You know, they ask a question, why is it so often that a mother-in-law does not get along with the daughter-in-law? The reason why is because both of them love the same man. And that's a problem. Now, can you imagine what it's like to be married to one man and being your wife? And that's exactly what's going on here. You have two women competing for one man, and one loves Hannah more than he loves Penine. And so there's this bitterness, there's this strife, there's this competitiveness between two of them. And so one, because she has children, and notice according to our text, she has both sons and she has daughters, and Hannah has none. And so she is using that in order to inflict pain on Hannah. And notice that she did it at the most inopportune time. I mean, not to say that there is an opportune time to be a Penina, not saying that, but in verse 7 says, It happened year after year, as often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. The time of worship, the time of going to the presence of God, because that's where God dwelt in the Old Testament, proved the most distressing and most painful time for Hannah. You see, that's so often happens that people who are the closest to you will inflict the most pain on you at the most inopportune time. And as a result, the text says, Hannah would weep and she would not eat. And while she was inflict, Penina was in torturing Hannah, we see here Elkanah, he does his best to comfort his wife. Look at verse 4. When the day came for Elkanah, that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portion to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. Now we see, in some way, this is an expression of love because he's elevating her above the others. But on the other hand, this is grounds for resentment. This is favoritism. And you can see that all throughout the Bible. That is another problem, especially... I mean, think about Jacob and his sons. Joseph, the robe. You remember how much hatred... He suffered as a result of that favoritism. And so here, Hannah, I mean, Elkanah, he's trying to do everything that he can to care for his wife because he loves her. And so he gives her this double portion. He tries to console her. Look at verse 8. He said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I mean, he's trying to be a good husband. He's trying to comfort her and say sometimes. But you know what? Sometimes you don't even know what to say. And so... He finds himself in this position here. And so he says, am I not better to you than ten sons? And notice she has this desire to have a child. And even the love of her husband did not hamper that desire. She's in distress. She's in pain. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we know that this was not selfish desire for children. Because, you know, people have children for wrong reasons or not have them for wrong reasons also, Right? Some people do it to promote themselves, to live vicarious through their children. And so people have children or not have children for wrong reasons. But we read the rest of the story. And we know that Hannah is willing to part with that child when he is weaned, when he's three years old. And so we know that desire was not selfish. And I know that many people in today's culture, they can't relate to this. While many people weep because they can't have children, many people today don't want to have children. A recent study from Michigan found, found that one out of five adults in Michigan do not want to have children. Now, Michigan is no different than most of the states in America. That means that 50 to 60 million Americans want to die childless. You add to that the number of abortions that are happening every single day, and we are a decaying and dying nation. Now, Hannah was distressed because she wanted to have a child but notice that as we keep reading that this distress did not diminish her devotion to God. Let's look secondly at Hannah's devotion. Verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. 
In many cases, distress causes people to pull away from God. People would say things like, well, if there was God, then he would not let this happen. Or if there was God, why am I going through this? And so they push God away and they run away from God. But notice Hannah draws near to God. She could have gotten bitter against God because he was the one who closed her womb. She could have been resentful against Penina. But we don't see her complaining in this text. We don't see her murmuring. She's not nagging. Rather than running away from God, she's drawn near to Him. And that is one of the reasons why God brings trials into our lives, right? To draw us near to Himself. Because so often, especially with this being barren, not being able to have children, we read all throughout the Bible, this was one experience that God very often used before He brought about great blessing. I mean, think of Sarah, think of Samson's mother, think of others, including Hannah here. This was a source of great blessing eventually. You see, the Lord wants us to find satisfaction not only in the gifts that He gives, but in the one who gives those gifts, right? He wants you to be satisfied in God Himself. But there's nothing wrong with receiving gifts from God, but not at the expense of the giver. If you just like all the good things that God gives to you and forget the God who gives those things to you, what good is that? And so so very often God will put you in a place where you don't have that gift to hold on to, where you have to look to the one who gives those gifts. And that is what we see here. Hannah rose and she went to Shiloh. That was a place of worship. That was where the tabernacle was at that time. Yes, Eli was over the tabernacle, and he's not the best father. And yes, his sons are wicked priests, but God promised to dwell in the tabernacle. This is where the presence of God was. And you can read this, and this is an amazing picture of an Old Testament saint, saying having a fellowship with God himself, not just going to a priest and the priest would intercede before him. But no, Hannah herself draws near, and she prays directly to the Lord. She's weeping, and she's praying fervently. And look at verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now this was a common practice in the Old Testament, to make a vow Now, you make a vow, not because you're making a bargain with God. If you do this for me, I do that for you. No, but it was a way to express gratitude. Lord, if you'll be so gracious to me and you will bless me in this way, this is how I will offer my thanksgiving to you. Notice she addresses God as a Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. Lord, you are powerful. Lord, you have strength. Lord, you have ability to give me what I want. You can hear my prayer and you can answer. Notice her attitude in her prayer. She doesn't demand. She comes and she recognizes her lowly position. Three times she calls herself a maidservant. If you would indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. I mean, she confesses that she's broken, that she's afflicted, that she's distressed. And she's saying, Lord, if only you would remember me, my distress would be removed. I mean, this is a heart of a person who relies totally on the Lord. And this applies not only to mothers, this applies to all of us, right? The Lord will put you in a place when you will cry out to him like this. And Hannah comes And she says, I am your servant, and Lord, would you please remember me? And I know that you have power to answer me. What is her request? But will give your maidservant a son. Notice she's not asking for sons, but a son. Notice she's not just asking, Lord, I just want to be a mother. It doesn't matter, son or daughter, twins or triplets. or No, she's asking specifically for a son. Why? Because she says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Lord, if you give him to me, I will give him to you. 
Now, Hannah knows that she's in the Levitical line and that if she has a son, he will be eligible to serve in the tabernacle all of his life. You can't just be anybody and go, ah, I want to volunteer and serve here in tabernacle. No. She knows that she's in the Levitical line. She knows that she can have a son. And if the Lord blesses her, I am going to dedicate him. And notice he's going to serve the Lord all the days of his life. If you were a Levite, your responsibility was to serve the Lord in the tabernacle from age 25 up to 50. On a rotation. But here, she says, no, no, no. He will serve the Lord all the days of his life. This is my vow. This is my commitment. And she further adds, and razor shall not come upon his head. You know, this is from Numbers chapter 6, where you have a Nazarite vow. And this was a vow that people took for a period of time when they dedicated themselves for a specific service to the Lord for a specific time. And they said, I will not cut my hair during that time. They would not drink wine, touch anything that is dead. And so she brings that in here and he says, the razor shall not come upon his head. Now, this was always for a specified period of time. There are only two lifelong Nazarites in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, unless you consider John the Baptist one, in that you only have Samson and you have Samuel. The rest of the times, this was a vow that people took for a period of time. Now, it is possible that Hannah patterns herself after Samson's mother, because you recall she was also barren, and she, her son was commanded to be a lifelong Nazarite, Samson. Now, in this case, Hannah dedicates her child to the Lord for his entire life. Now, that's devotion. I mean, those of you who mother, who are mothers, you can relate to this. You can imagine this, that you say, hey, I'm going to take my three-year-old, I'm going to take him, I'll drop him off at the temple, he's going to live there the rest of his life. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can part with their children like this, but that's her promise. That's why we can see that her desire to have a child was not a selfish desire so that she can somehow avoid her distress or her pain or this way society looked down on her. No, she says, I want my child to serve the Lord all the days of his life. And while Hannah is praying, Eli is watching. Look at verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Now we read the Bible, and it was a common practice for people to pray the Lord to the Lord out loud. In fact, there are not very many prayers that we read of or hear of where people are praying silently. But here's Hannah. That's her heart. She knows that the Lord could hear her. She knows that the Lord could read her thoughts. She knows that the Lord can hear her even if she does not utter those words out loud. And Eli comes to a wrong conclusion. 13, Eli said, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. And it's not exactly clear why he came to that conclusion. I mean, if you think about the time in which this happened, it was probably uncommon for women to come to the tabernacle and to just pray like that to the Lord. On top of that, you consider what his sons were doing, and he probably saw a lot of drunk women around the temple doing things with his sons that they shouldn't have done. And perhaps he just took Hannah and lumped her in with them. But he could not have been more wrong. Verse 15, Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit, And I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Now again, you read this, and you can see Hannah's humility, and you can see her heart. I mean, imagine yourself in her shoes. You are broken, you are distressed, you are weeping, And your pastor comes to you and says, why are you drunk? I mean, your natural reaction will be to say some things that you probably would regret later. But in her case here, no, she says, no, no, look at her humility. No, she's humble. She's respectful. No, my Lord, I am not drunk. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. My spirit is distressed, and I came here not to stand before you, not to reveal anything to you. I came here to pour out my request to the Lord. And notice, even in this case, she 
who is respectful to Eli, and she says, I am your maidservant. I am not a worthless woman. I'm not here by accident. I didn't just wander in here because I wasn't sure what I was doing. No, I intentionally came here to be in the presence of the Lord, and I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Now Eli realizes that he's wrong. In verse 17 he says to her, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. This is amazing. He turns to the rebuke that he had for her into a blessing. May you go in peace. And what's that word for peace? You know, shalom. It's more than just, you know, everything is going to be calm now. No, may the peace of God go with you. It's the peace that quiets the heart, that restores the spirit, that uplifts the soul. It's the same thing that we read of Numbers chapter 6. Remember the blessing that the priest was to pronounce on the people? When he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance and give you peace. This is the blessing that He pronounces upon her. And notice, even at this moment, Eli doesn't know what she was praying for. She never told him. But he says to her, no, no, go in peace. And may the Lord hear, and may the Lord answer. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of Him. And Hannah's response in verse 18, let your maid servant find favor in your sight. Again, this is a woman who's so humble that even when she's accused of being a drunkard by a priest, she says, I'm your maid servant. May I find favor in your sight. And notice the result. Now, this is amazing. So the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Now what changed in her circumstances at that moment? In her circumstances, the answer is nothing. She was still a barren woman. And she still had Penina at home. Nothing changed. But notice, she went and she ate and her face was no longer sad. The situation did not change But Hannah changed. You see, she was no longer consumed with the fact that she was a barren woman and the fact that she had no children. No, she said, I brought my request to the Lord. I've opened my heart before Him. And now the ball is in His court. That's what she says here. I mean, isn't this a perfect example of what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7? He says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a perfect illustration of that. Now Hannah brought her request before the Lord. She laid out her heart. And then she says, Lord, now it's up to you. I've done what I could. And she walked away with peace. She went and she ate and her face was no longer sad. Notice, even her outward appearance has changed. I mean, what a contrast between the distress that we see in first eight verses to this peace that we see in verse 18. You see, the difference between the two states is being in the presence of God and laying out your request before Him, is it not? That's what she did. She went to the Lord. She told Him what she desired. She said why she desired it. And he says, now, Lord, it is up to you. And I can rest in whatever it is that you're going to do. And her devotion to the Lord, it freed her from the distress that she had. And her distress was changed to joy. And she went and she ate. Finally, let's look at Hannah's dedication. Verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worship before the Lord, and return again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. After 
he finished his rotation and his time there at the tabernacle. According to verse 19, they returned home and the life continued as before. Except this time it didn't take long for Hannah to become pregnant. And notice again the reason why the Lord remembered her. Now it's not like she was a virgin before this and they didn't try. They did. Except this time the Lord remembered her. The Lord was aware of her prior, but when it says here, the Lord remember her, their idea is the Lord has dispensed His grace on her this time. In this way, He blessed her with a child. The Lord gave grace to Hannah to conceive. Why? Because it is His prerogative to give life. And He decides when you have one. Nine months later, the child is born. And the text says here that she named him Samuel, which means God has heard. You see, Hannah knows this is not a coincidence. She knows that it didn't just happen. And she named him Samuel. Why? She says, because I have asked him of the Lord. She knows that the Lord brought this about. This is not just like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it still would have happened if I wasn't there in the temple. No, she knows exactly why it happened, because the Lord has given it to me. And look at her dedication to the son that the Lord has given to her. Verse 21 says, Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord a yearly sacrifice and pay vows. Which means the next year at the time when he had to go, he travels back to Shiloh, which means that they had a son within that year, the first year, that after she had prayed. So the child was already born, born, and Hannah is traveling back on his rotation. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Connor, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. What's interesting is, in verse 21, apparently Elkanah also made a vow because he's going back to fulfill the vow that he made, of which we did not read anything earlier. And he returns to Shiloh, but Hannah stays behind with a baby. Now, it's not because she's going back on her vow, but because she says, I'm going to take the next three years until I wean him, and I'm going to dedicate these years to my son. You see, Hannah knows that she only has so long with her son. Three years. And at the age of three, she's going to take him to a tabernacle, to the tabernacle, and she's going to leave him there. Now, if you are a mother or a father and you're still raising your children, I want you to pay attention here and just think about this. Your children are granted to you by God for a very short time. You see, in Hannah's case, it was three years. In your case, I mean, at most, it's going to be 18 as you raise them. Now, you might think, well, 18 years is a long time. Is it? I mean, think about this scenario. Say you get married, 23. You have children till you're about 30. You raise them for 18 years, and so by the time you're 45, you're done raising your kids. An average lifespan for a woman in America is 80 years today. Now you take 25 years before you have your children, and you take 35 years after you have them, you put that together, and that is a long time. And you have this period of life that is given to you to raise your children. You see, our culture has convinced today fathers and mothers that they cannot take this short time and take this opportunity to invest in their children because they just can't afford it. Now granted, there are single moms and there are special situations and we're not talking about them. We're not talking about exceptions. But if we're honest, truth be told that most people, they're not willing to part with their standard of living in order to raise the families and the children that God has given them. And that's why they invest in everything else other than the children that God has given them. 
That's why you need to work a second job. You need to be outside of the house. You need to do a whole lot of things. In this short period of time that is specifically allotted to you by God to raise your children. Now, if you're an adult today, think back to your childhood. What do you remember? How much money your parents had or whether your mom was home or not? What do you remember? The vacations that you took or the relationship that you had with your parents? What do you remember? Now, you see, we understand that. And if we're honest, we can just say, well, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm called to do. But there are so many things that compete for those things. And you think, well, this is the prime of life. This is where I got to work. This is where I got to build a career. This is where I... And we take the most precious thing that the Lord has given to us, and we give it to somebody else to raise our kids. Now here, you look at this example, and the example here that I'm going to take the short time that the Lord allots to me, and I'm going to do everything in my power to invest in that child. Now listen, we're not against, God is not against big houses, He's not against nice cars, and neither are we. But you don't want to have those at the expense of your kids. You don't. Because those kids are precious and they have life and they will live forever and they will live in one place or the other. And you as a parent have the most influence on them, especially in their formative years. Trust me, if you're not raising your kids, someone is. And again, we're not just saying, hey, stay home with your kids and never work outside the house. That's not what we're saying. Because you can stay home and you can let Netflix and YouTube raise your kids. You can do that. And it's not going to be better off than, you know, somebody else is raising them. No. You see, this is a precious time. This is a special opportunity and a privilege that the Lord gives to mothers specifically and fathers to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord, to teach, to train them. I mean, I was just sitting there thinking, the kid is three years old, and she takes him and she drops him off at the tabernacle with Eli and his sons. I mean, think about conversation she must have had with Samuel before he was three. I mean, like two. Like, baby, do you know that, you know, I pray for you. The only reason that you exist is because I went and I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord has heard my prayer. And you know what I promised to the Lord? I promised to the Lord that when you're three, I'm going to take you to the tabernacle. I'm going to drop you off there, and you're going to serve the Lord your whole life there. I mean, can you imagine Samuel at two? Mom, did you think through that? Did you ask me about it? Now we think like, okay, at two, three, they don't understand anything. We even have a term, oh, it's just terrible twos. No, no. They understand a whole lot more than we give them credit for. And so notice, she only had three years with him. That is the only time and only opportunity that she had to invest in him. And she was there and she says, listen, I'm not even going to go on this yearly thing that you go there to Shiloh to serve there because he would take his family however long he served there. He's like, no, I'm going to stay home because this is my work right now. The Lord has given me this child. I'm going to invest every minute and every moment that I have in him. Now that is dedication to her child. That is dedication to her role, that this is the priority in my life. Now, we have different stages in life, right? You have different stages. You know, you're young, you're going to college, you're doing your things, you're hanging out, right? And it's fine. That's okay. But then this moment comes when the Lord grants you that child. He gives you that opportunity for those precious however many years the Lord gives to you. And you're going to make a choice. Am I going to fulfill my ministry, my responsibility that the Lord has given to him. Hannah had three years. Did she succeed? Now, as far as we know, there is not one negative thing that is said about Samuel in the whole scripture, except the fact that his children did not walk in his ways. But he most likely learned that from Eli, living with him since the age of three. You read Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and Samuel was there. It's because his mother dedicated herself to her son. And you know what? Her dedication paid off. Because you read the rest of the story, and the nation of Israel, in a sense, it changes with Samuel. Because she would serve the Lord faithfully his whole life. And notice, Hannah did not only dedicate herself to her son, she also dedicated him to the Lord 
Because look at verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour, and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Notice she followed through with her vow. Now I'm sure there were, she had temptation to Baal. I mean, she could have said, Lord, I mean, you understand, the child is too young. She's, you know, he still needs his mom, and he does. doesn't do that. She could have said, listen, Lord, on the second thought, the environment in the tabernacle is not very good, because, you know, Hophni and Phinehas. And it wasn't good. But she takes him there and dedicates him not to Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, but she dedicated him to the Lord. She makes no excuses. At the age of three, she drops him off and she offers a sacrifice. And her words to Eli are powerful. Look at verse 26. She said, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here besides you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord there. If you were to read a literal translation of verses 27 and 28, there's a word that is repeated again and again and again, and there's a point to it. She says, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what, I was, what was asked to Yahweh all the days he lives. He is the one that is asked of Yahweh. That's why his name is Samuel. I ask, the Lord has heard. And that's why he doesn't belong to me. He's not my child. He's the Lord's child. And by the way, your children don't belong to you either. My child does not belong to me. They belong to the Lord. And so she says, that's why I'm going to take him and I'm going to dedicate him to the Lord. Now think about this. If we're talking about biblical motherhood, what is your number one goal in life for your children? Is it for them to be successful? Is it for them to have a lot of money? What is it? And you know what? Don't just, you know, take your Bible answer and say Jesus, right? But honestly, assess your priorities. What is it that you are pushing your children to be and to do when they grow up? Where is it that you are investing your money? Where is it that you're investing your time? And that will tell you what is a priority for your children. Now, Hannah says here, Lord, I want a child that you would give to me so that I can give him back to you. And I will suggest to you that that is the goal for every single Christian parent. Your number one priority is that your children would serve the Lord all the days of your life. That is your number one priority. Your number one priority is not that your children would be great in soccer, not that they would be rich, not that they would have great education. I'm not saying those things are bad. But your number one goal and priority that your child will serve the Lord. Now the question is, what do you have to do as a parent for that to happen? What is it that you're going to invest in? How is it that you're going to dedicate your, your, your time and your resources to that child so that you would achieve that one main goal? You see, that could change the way you view things. That could change the way you live. That can change the way you work. That can change everything because your priorities are aligned differently. Now, it's not that, you know what, I just have to provide them for the best childhood. You know, I didn't have a great childhood, so I'm going to make sure my child has the greatest childhood. Well, so what if he has the greatest childhood and then goes to hell? Who cares? But you know what? You might not have the best vacations or the best house. Or the best car. But you know what? If your child is walking with the Lord, that is going to be your greatest satisfaction. On that day when you are standing before the Lord, or when you are ready to go, and you look back and you reflect on your life, it'd be like, it won't be like, man, I wish I could have worked a little bit harder so I can you know, buy another Disney vacation. No. You'd be like, I wish I would have spent more time. I wish I would have invested more. I wish I would have seen this as a priority. Now, that is what we learn here from Hannah. 
She dedicates herself to the child in these years of life. And listen, before you have children, you have a lot more freedom than you do when you have them. And after your children are out of the house, again, you will have abundant freedom to do whatever, whatever it is that you have to do, right? But this period of time, it is a precious gift from the Lord that you, especially as a mother, is given in order to build the character of your child and train up when he's young. What a story. I mean, so many lessons that we all can take from this. And I just hope and pray that this would be encouraging, encouragement for you, especially mothers. The world may devalue you, may look down on you, and maybe even we as men, oftentimes, we don't appreciate what our wives are doing at home when we're not there, right? But you know what? That does not mean that your position and your role is any less valuable. You see, you are serving the Lord by fulfilling your mission that He has given to you. And it is hard, and it is not rewarding, and it is painful, and very oftentimes it will be overlooked. But you know what? There is one who is always watching. There is one who always sustains, and there is one to whom you can go in those difficult times as Hannah did. And He'll give strength because He's the Lord, Lord of hosts. Dedicate yourself to your children if you have them. Dedicate your children to the Lord. And I can tell you based on the authority of God's word that your work is highly valued by God. Listen, no one else can be mother for your children. No one else can substitute them, substitute you to them. You can't offshore that somewhere. You can't. There is a void because that's how God made families. Now this is not a guarantee that your son or your daughter will be Samuel because outcomes are the Lord's. Duty is ours. Right? We have that responsibility that is assigned to us and the Lord determines how it ends. But we have scripture that tells us train up a child in the way that he should go. As a general principle it applies he says he will not deviate from that path even when he's old. If you invest, if you do what Hannah did here, the Lord promises to reward that. Now perhaps maybe you'll listen to this and your kids are grown and you think that you have failed in some way as a mother. You see, if you sinned in any way as a mother or as a father or as anyone, there's one solution, right? There's one solution that is to go to the Lord and to confess that sin. Where you fell short, you confess you confess it to God. You confess it to those whom you sin against. Perhaps it might be your children in this way. And you go to them. And perhaps this will be a breakthrough when some of the things could be restored. And whatever amount of time the Lord has allotted to you still here, make the best of it. Right? Or maybe you feel like your mother has failed you. Because there are many, many, many broken homes today. Very often it's fathers, but sometimes it's also mothers. Listen, you don't have to live in bitterness. And you don't have to go on and carry that with you your entire life. You have promise of the word of God. Listen to this. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? I mean, he's asking this rhetorical question. He's like, does that happen? He's like, no, in general, this does not happen. Because women love the children. But he says, even if these may forget, I will not forget you. That is a promise that you have, that you might not have had a best mother, but you know what? You have Father in heaven who says, I will never abandon you. And those of you who do not have children yet, or perhaps you never have them, you see, this is also an encouragement for you that you can come alongside of those who do. You can rest in the sovereignty of God in your case because it is He who determines it, right? And perhaps He has other ministries and other opportunities for you to serve in that way. If you're a woman, you're still a nurturer, whether you have children or you don't. And there are plenty of opportunities within the church or within other families to come alongside of those who need your help and to nurture them and to use that as a way to serve. As we said, in the physical sense, you nurture your children. But in the spiritual sense, it is also the same thing, is it not? 
Paul says, you know what? I was in labor for you. I mean, Paul said that. In the same way, there is this way in which you come alongside and you spiritually raise people who are coming after you. Be mothers, be fathers to them. And may this be a place that we can all, as a church, each one realizing that we all have different roles. Now, because we have different roles, it does not mean that some are superior to others and others are inferior to them. No, we're just different. And the Lord has given different responsibilities and different lots. And when it comes to the mother, it is to nurture your children while you have them with the opportunities that you have. Now, again, this is difficult. This is not rewarding in this life and sometimes painful. But you know what? There is one who watches. And I want to encourage all of us to also watch out for those people. Because there are hurting people. There are hurting women. There are hurting mothers. And so we can come alongside of them and we can build them up. We can encourage them and we can lift them up. So that we all as one family, mothers, fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, and everyone else in between, would worship the Lord as one redeemed family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do this in this place. That all of us would fulfill the roles that you have assigned to us. Lord, we pray that you would grace many, that you would give children because they are blessing from you. And you would give commitment and dedication to mothers and to fathers to raise them up for your glory. We need your grace. We can't do this on our own. We pray that you would do this for us, for your glory. Amen.